This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today we are joined by Jason Cormier. He's the co-founder of Room 214. And my co-host, Jamie Zalman. She's the founder and president of Titan CEO. Jamie, Jason, welcome. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bob, appreciate it. Oh, you know, we talked a little bit before the show, fascinated by what you do. So if you could tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Sure. So uh, the name of the company is Room 214, as you said. We are what is called a growth studio. And so we help bring coherence across an organization's brand marketing and sales efforts. We have a digital marketing agency background. And so a lot of folks come to us for those kinds of services. Uh, but we've migrated a bit outside of what you would probably consider as traditional digital marketing and social media. Uh, real quick to finish the, uh, the answer to the question. Uh, the clients that we serve actually vary quite a bit. Uh, so from funded startups to Fortune 100, uh, really across multiple industries uh, over the last 16 years. You know, Jamie, the, the question that comes to my mind is this, you go, you've migrated a bit from digital marketing to growth and coherence. Paint me a picture of what that looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at digital marketing uh, in particular, you know, I mean, and I'll just say what you understand about marketing in general is that when everybody's doing best practices, what they're really doing is basic practices. Uh, and what you learn pretty quickly is what worked last season doesn't necessarily work this season, or what works for your competitor doesn't necessarily work for you. And so what happens is you get a bunch of people in marketing uh, that uh, are really frustrated over time. You know, they're working their butts off. Uh, you know, the chief marketing officer, the chief revenue officer, these two roles these days, there's so much responsibility on their shoulders to, you know, increase leads, increase sales, uh, whatever the case may be. And the problem is they keep running up against the same walls. And so there's a lot of great subject matter experts in digital marketing and, and a lot of great marketing agencies out there. But what we found over time, and this is really, you know, the migration, is that understanding how things holistically fit is where that's going to be most helpful to people. So for example, this, this concept of coherence, if you look at a CEO or, or even ask a CEO, hey, where's their coherence in your business? Interestingly, you might get kind of a deer in the headlights look from them. But if you say, where is their incoherence in your business? Well, now you're never going to hear the end of it. And so a lot of what we've done, this migration from a marketing agency to a growth studio is we've recognized that, hey, if we can bring coherence across an organization's brand, marketing, and sales, this is actually something that's missing. And this is something that will make a tremendous difference in terms of their growth. You know, the, the term I always hear is alignment. And it's pretty hard to be aligned if you don't even know that you're misaligned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in order to act quickly, you have to be aligned deeply. And in order to adjust often, uh, you have to be aligned deeply. Yeah, I, I would imagine that message resonates really well. You know, you know, we, we were talking beforehand, you're a combat information center, former Navy guy, and the difference between data and intel and an actionable intel, there's a wide gulf between the two. And it sounds like this is an iterative event of what you did in the Navy. Uh, you know, there, there are some interesting connections for sure. Uh, I mean, it, and, and the interesting thing about data is, companies have invested so much in data. And it's almost like, yeah, there's good reasons for it. But quite ironically, as 
a company that comes from this digital marketing background, what we found is that the data is always flawed. And so what happens is organizations have first, you know, they've come up with data initiatives, investing in a lot of this data. They've hired expensive data scientists who end up working their time. They spend all their time fixing the data, making the data make sense. And so it's funny, we say the data is always flawed. What's ironic is that the most important data we've been able to collect comes directly from customer conversations, not from web analytics. And I'm not saying web analytics aren't important uh, or advertising data sets and all that. Of course, that's important, but more people have like staked their reputation on that and they've rolled the dice and I'm afraid that they've lost in a lot of cases. You know, to, to finish up the thought, uh, in the military world, you know, there was a focus on human years and years ago where you had actually human intelligence on ground in country and the human intelligence world, uh, they thought the simple fix was just data. And so they spent a great deal of time, effort and money on trying to do the data capture, you know, whether it's SIGINT and signals intelligence and others. And the reality is, just like you're talking about, without the human side of the intelligence, uh, the rest can lead you astray. So it's a, and I'm an old Intel guy. So. Um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting parallel. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's like, so, so when I was in the Navy, you know, so you brought that up. My ship was a taxi cab for Marines. We actually um, had Navy SEALs on board and we would be cruising, you know, about a, a mile from the beach and we knew what the weather was, yet these SEALs would essentially, you know, depart our ship, swim a mile to the beach, and they would be hanging out on the beach, getting beat up in the surf for hours. And the whole idea was you actually needed someone to be there. You know, you needed human intelligence in the trenches or on the beaches. You couldn't just say, yeah, the weather forecast is this. And so we know everything we need to know. Yeah, it's, you know, an individual sport and getting, you know, I think the interpretation of the data by a human, you know, he says, yes, I appreciate that. And maybe it challenges my thought process, but it really matters to crank it through a human or two. To find out, you know, and, and I was, you know, reading some of your work and whatnot. Uh, that's what struck me as I was reading that early, uh, earlier today. So, Jamie, I am sorry. I'm back down the rabbit hole again. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations again, Jason, for being recognized as a 2020 Titan 100. For those of you watching, I'm holding up a copy of the Titan 100 book in which Jason was recognized and profiled. This platform recognizes Colorado's top 100 CEOs and C-level executives. And so, Jason, as part of the podcast series, I always like to ask our Titans, what characteristics do they believe it takes to be considered a Titan of industry? Ooh, a Titan of industry. Well, um, thanks. And, and it's an honor. And uh, I love being um, part of the whole Titan community. It's awesome. Um, and I've learned a lot as a result, too. For me, it's been a lot of uh, leading with humility, understanding that um, I certainly don't have all the answers as, as someone who leads a company. And I think, you know, that was a huge part of why uh, we adopted open book management and, and uh, have done a lot in that area, getting more minds on the problems. I think, you know, curiosity is, I can't say enough about that. If you think you've arrived you are wrong, <laughs> you know, especially with, with my industry. I mean, things change so quickly um, that it's, you know, I, I have to rely on curiosity to make it so that I, I'm spending time looking at, at the right things on behalf of my clients. So 
I think those are two huge things. Uh, generally speaking as well, um, you know, just from a values perspective, uh, acting out of love instead of fear, it's real easy to get into a mode of cover your ass. Uh, and, um, it, you know, with marketing in particular, because people want to know, hey, what, what's the return on this? Or, hey, did this thing that we did, did it actually work? And, um, you know, sometimes it works great and sometimes it just doesn't. And so being very upfront and honest about that in an industry that's probably full of a lot of snake oil too. Mm. Um, I think that, uh, you know, our mantra is creating valuable relationships and there's no substitute for that. Uh, and so people want to buy from who they know, like, and trust. Uh, and, and you just, you can't fake that. Um, and so I, I guess that's probably it. All those things. <laughs> no, it's profound thoughts. And I know that you, as I know you, because I've known you for some time, you definitely lead with humility and, you know, your whole statement around acting out of love and not fear is something that is uh, painted on your office walls because I have been to your offices before. So I love, I love that statement. I wish more people would act out of love and not out of fear. Me too. <laughs> yeah. To, to, Think about that point, though. It takes an extraordinary amount of courage to function from that place because there's risk there. There's absolutely risk. Uh, and so the idea of open book management, for example, is, is part of that risk that we take on. And that is that uh, you know, there's transparency with the numbers. And it's not just a, a report that's given out in terms of the way we do it. It is Every other week, people see all the numbers. So what are the labor costs? What are the revenues? What are the profits? And, you know, when things are going great in your business, it's great. And when things aren't, people tend to have more questions. And so to your point, that's a risk that we've taken. And, and over the years, uh, you know, we, we've had open book management over the last seven years. You know, there's been a lot of uncomfortable situations. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's worth it because it's always about people. And I think the appreciation is there that there's an honest discussion about all those things. And people would rather have that, even if it's uncomfortable, uh, at least that's my experience, um, than just be told, you know, just given some sort of glossy view of, of how things are good when maybe they're not so good. Well, you know, circling back a little bit, we talked a bit about your, your Navy exposure. How did, you know, What's your path from there to where we are now with your company, Room 214? I think folks would be interested on how you got from there to here. Sure. So um, before the Navy, uh, so I was at Colorado State University with my business partner, James, at Room 214. And um, unfortunately, Room 214 happened to be uh, in a party dorm. And I'll just tell you, it was a party room. And so nothing good happened at the original Room 214. And after a year of that, I somehow concluded that I needed discipline. <laughs> and uh, to my parents' chagrin at the time, it was like, hey, I'm an enlist in the Navy. I had no money. And it just seemed like I need to get as far away from this place as possible. So enlisted. And, when, and so I got my GI Bill, which meant that uh, going back to school was going to be paid for. Ended up, uh, my lovely wife and I got married about six months prior to getting out of the Navy. She was a high school sweetheart. And um, so we could basically live anywhere we wanted to live. She graduated from college and it was like, take your pick. So we chose Santa Barbara, California. 
and uh, Santa Barbara City College. And I decided I was going to be a computer science major because, uh, you know, hey, that's like where the money was at, right? Uh, well, just so happens I was terrible uh, at computer science. I was not a good coder. Uh, I was struggling and suffering. And, but it was 1995. Uh, and a friend of mine said, hey, there's this thing called Netscape that allows you to get on the World Wide Web and have like this visual interface of it. It's not just words. And uh, here's a copy of Photoshop. He handed me a few disks. Uh, and here's a one pager on this thing called HTML. And it's easy compared to the type of programming that we do. So um, in a very short period of time, I taught myself how to build web pages. Uh, and I decided, wow, maybe this could, could be a business. And a real estate agent approached me and said, would you build a website for me? Uh, and and uh, if, you, if you did, how much would you charge? And I said, well, I don't know, 350 bucks. So he's like, yeah, let's do it. And next thing I knew, I was like, wow, this, this could actually be a business. So I had a one pager called, why do you need a website? And I walked the streets of Santa Barbara passing this thing out. Uh, and most people were like, Who, get out of here, kid. <laughs> what is this? We'll never need a website. And um, yeah, one thing led to another and uh, ended up growing a web development firm and selling that firm to a competitor after about two and a half years. And then I was a VP in, in that company that bought mine and ran a web development uh, organization that was like nationwide at that point. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was a series of different businesses that followed after that. And then eventually I connected with my, my old time friend, James, who had gone into public relations. And there was a pretty big disconnect between PR and what was happening in the digital world, websites, thing, things of that nature. And James had interestingly coined uh, what, uh, a term, what he called the placement crash. And, and what that was in PR was that, you know, a company would work with the PR firm, they would get some sort of uh, big hit in USA Today or Wall Street Journal or whatever. Uh, their web traffic would spike, it would be incredible. Uh, they, you know, everybody would be slapping high fives, a major win, right? But within 48 hours, it was as if nothing happened. The web traffic flattened out and that was the placement crash. And James and I were talking about that back in the day. And it was like, you know, what, hap what would happen if um, there was actually preparation, you know, and content was produced on the web and there was a way to capture that traffic so that a company that experienced a big PR hit didn't have a placement crash. So those were early conversations that we had. And by 2003, Google AdWords was a pretty much a brand new platform. And we started to tinker with it together. Uh, and we saw that there were a bunch of ads out there on like, you know, buy this, buy that. And we thought, what if we produced an ad that said the top five things you need to know about fill in the blank. We were actually working with a, a China manufacturing company at that point called Vital Sourcing. So we, we created this white paper called Top Five Things You Need to Know About Manufacturing in China. And we thought, well, what if we just placed an ad around that? Well, at this point, ads were five cents a click, which is ridiculously cheap. Um, that ad started getting clicked on left and right. And of course, it drove them to a page where we asked them for their name and email address in exchange to download this white paper. 
Well, that's like content. That's like the most basic content 101 marketing there is today. But at the time, there were very few people doing that. And um, so, you know, we, we, we were flooded with leads from all across the world. And it was, it was this massive success story. And we were optimizing a website to make sure that, you know, we were showing up. Um, and what we realized anyway, uh, to just, you know, fast forward this story was that there was definitely a business in helping, helping companies use this new thing called Google AdWords uh, and WordPress. And uh, so we started Room 214. And I'll just tell you, it, it was, we got lucky too. You know, three years after we started, uh, Facebook wasn't just for college kids anymore. And, you know, we got a call one day from a PR firm in New York and they said, hey, we've got this client travel channel and travel channels asking us questions about Facebook and YouTube. And there's this new Twitter thing out there. We don't know how to answer these freaking questions, but we heard about you clowns in Boulder, Colorado that have been playing with this. Maybe you can talk to travel channel. Well, next thing you know, you know, we're doing, we're basically managing Anthony Bourdain's Facebook page. We're setting up Facebook pages for all travel channel TV shows and Twitter accounts. And, um, you know, that led to this, you know, two-year engagement, you know, million-dollar client. And um, we were just faked it till we made it, you know. We, we really learned on the job. But the timing was such that if you did a search for social media agency on Google for years, we were in the number one or number two spot. And so companies from all over the place came to us, you know, Sanrio, Hello Kitty, Hey, can you help us with Facebook? Um, and we built our business and we rode that wave for many years. And so, you know, it's been, a, it's been an inter interesting journey. And there were some other businesses in between. Some, some did okay and others failed. <laughs> but this is when we've been at it for a while. So, you know, awesome. It's such a great story. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. You bet. <laughs> yeah, I love listening to just the history. I mean, there's so much that's very rich and you were really on the forefront of a lot of new age market adoption. Uh, I still think it's just hysterical that you were walking around um, asking people if they wanted websites and people were laughing like, what do I need a website for? So it's just I mean, mind blowing today the, the in 2020. Is, I, I know. And the thing is, I was, I was discouraged by a lot of people, even though it was obvious that, like, that this internet thing, like a visual, like a web browser, I, you know, to me, it was like, this is clearly the future. But a lot of people were like, kid, you're never going to make, you can't create a business just selling websites. You're going to have to go figure out how to do something else. And I'll just tell you, the epiphany came when, <laughs> so Kinko's, people out there remember Kinko's, Right, it's FedEx now, right? But Kinko's corporate was 30 minutes down the road from me. And I knew a woman there named Mary Hamilton, who was a friend of my wife who worked in the marketing department. And they had paid big money to some San Francisco firm to build their website. And they didn't want to do that anymore. And she heard I'd, I'd been doing some website development. And she called me up and she said, Jason, we've got some like website maintenance type, you know, some pages we need developed. And I heard you could do this. Would you please just give us a bid for this? So I looked at the work and I thought, okay, I think I'm going to charge $1,000. <laughs> and and I, was, I was really nervous about this, right? So I put the bid out there. I sent it over the fence, 1000 bucks, And she got back to me and she said, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm going to be honest with you. And let's just consider this a confidential call. 
But in order for my company to take this bid seriously, you need to add another zero. And I, it took me aback. I, I was like, uh, can you give me like a half an hour? I'll revise that and get it back to you. Anyway, it was less than a day of work for $10,000. And she signed it that day. And it was at that, that day I realized, okay, the naysayers are wrong. <laughs> and this is something a, that's real. <laughs> that's such a cool story. You know, it, I, I, I think about the journey you're talking about. For me, first assignment, Fort Carson, Colorado, they had a computer on post. And it was punch card. My college had one computer, punch card. I mean, and you think about my kids grew up in the age of computers. And the iterative event, you know, and I can remember the when I, in the day I was with Merrill way back when, and the head of that whole division said, the Internet's a fad. It'll never amount to anything. And he said it in front of hundreds of guys. Interesting, interesting progression, though. A lot of disbelief at the day. Yeah, and it's, you know, in two and a half years from that time, I, I sat across from a CEO uh, who was interested in, in buying my company. And it was, I was a scene right out of a movie. Uh, he took me to breakfast. It was this amazing hotels overlooking the ocean. And I kid you not, this is going to sound cheesy, but this actually happened. Um, I'm sitting across from him and he says to me, and he's scribbling on a napkin. This is, this is so cheesy. And he says to me, Jason, today is the day I make you a millionaire. And he slides the napkin across the table. <laughs> so I look at the napkin. <laughs> it was, now this is 2000, by the way, this is right before the dot bomb. And the offer is a base salary of $100,000 plus a guaranteed bonus structure of $40,000 plus a million dollars in stock. Plus he's going to give me 25,000 in cash if I agree to it over the weekend. So I'm looking at this, by the way, I was a two man operation. It was my wife and I, and she was pregnant with our first kid. So I was about to lose half my workforce. Anyway, of course I take the offer. In the end, it was amazing experience. I'm so glad I did it. But the dot bomb happened, which meant that he did not make me a millionaire. And I sold my stock for 600 bucks. <laughs> you, you know, it's like, you know, I, I think about one of the things in the very beginning, you're talking about iterative work, right? And as you've come through this journey or history of the progression of technology, and you're looking at the client experience, like I can remember getting fax marketing. Or there was a dial-up service. You go and dial a phone and go, we're going to give you an update. And we recorded it. And that was technology in the day. And you're where you are now with AI machine learning. And, you know, the consumer has been bombarded every day with lots of input and trying to iterate and advance in that environment compared to where you started. I mean, your roots are in change. You don't have a choice. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, I mean, the iterative growth, you know, in, in digital you know, we refer to that as optimization. That, that is an ongoing process that should, you should never walk away from. However, a lot of companies are so focused on that iterative growth, and that is a conversation about being better than the competitor. What it's not is a conversation about being truly different than the competitor, because being truly different is what leads to exponential growth, not iterative growth. 
And so if you look at this from a, from a category leadership perspective, for example, you'll see that most category leaders, regardless of industry, they're very much focused on how are we different, not just better. And a huge key ingredient to that is how they go about marketing the problem that they're solving for their customers. Whereas most companies are focused on marketing the features and the benefits, they're really focused on marketing the problem, right? Because if you're talking about a problem I have more than anybody else, well, gosh, you know, you're empathizing with me. If you're talking about this problem so much, you must have a solution. Therefore, I'm more interested in you. And so that's a very interesting thing that we see in our business and a way that we've pivoted pretty substantially over the last couple of years is by getting into these deep conversations with our clients' customers. Um, and this goes beyond any survey, uh, any focus group. Those things have their places, but it's nothing compared to a deep 45-minute conversation that's unscripted with a customer to really determine what has pushed them into a certain set of circumstances that they're in. Uh, what has pulled them further into that discussion? What habits do they have to overcome? What, what anxieties do they have to overcome? Really understanding the customers and then recognizing that, oh my gosh, this is the most valuable data that you can have. And anything that you're doing in digital marketing has to start with that customer conversation. And all the analytics and the data and the AI and all the other stuff is noise compared to that. You know, it speaks a lot to the quality of your question. When you're talking to that customer, you know, I think, you know, what is it they say, you know, I think that many talk show hosts, Oprah, you know, Johnny Carson, the rest of them, the quality of the question you ask really drives that conversation, I think. Absolutely. And, and what's interesting about, you know, just being in conversation with people too is people have memories that they don't know they have. And the more that you get them talking, uh, the more that those start to bubble up. Well, those memories can be harnessed in a very strategic way. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's more interesting to me than trying to find some sort of pattern in a data set. Again, it's not that I'm ignoring data. I'm a data geek at heart. But I've seen far more value that comes from the data that can be taken out of a customer conversation, applied to content strategy, advertising strategy, even how a brand's positioning and messaging comes up. I love listening to you talk, Jason, about all of these experiences over the course of your lifetime and the things that have really driven you to develop your own methodologies and thought processes as you have been really just an incredible leader. So I'd be curious to know for our listeners, what's the best leadership lesson that you've learned along the way? Boy, the best. Jamie, you always have these awesome questions. <laughs> <laughs> Probing um, questions. Gosh, the best, the best leadership lesson. Boy, I have to say, you are going to make mistakes along the way. And I, I don't know if this is the best lesson, but what I will say is, I think contrary to a lot of popular belief, learning from your mistakes is not where it's at. You know, we, we live in this culture now that loves to talk about, you know, failing fast and, um, you know, it's okay for you to fail because you learn from your mistakes. I'm not arguing against that, but when you learn from your mistakes, you learn what not to do. I would say you learn far more from your successes. 
Uh, and so even in marketing, a lot of what you're doing is you're trying to find the bright spots. And then that's what you pour into, mm. right? And so as a leader, you know, that applies to everything. And as a leader, the, the most difficult thing you'll ever deal with, yet the most valuable thing is people. And nobody, well, I'll say very few people start a business because they want to lead people. They start a business because they take an interest in a certain topic or subject matter. And then as they're successful and, and they're adding people, they recognize, oh my gosh, I now suddenly have to be a student of leadership, not just good at my job. And so I think that that concept of failing fast and learning from failures and mistakes, it also applies to people. Yeah, you certainly learn from mistakes, but boy, when you're successful with people, you learn from that even more. Mm. And so anytime you can, you can you know, take that success, find that bright spot and reproduce it, you know, go and do likewise somewhere else. For me, that, that's been the most helpful. I like the different thought process there, spoken like a true titan. Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I'm, now, I'm, now I'm speechless. I have this vision of a, a Roman soldier hitting his breastplate with his hand. That's, that's for the folks that are listening. That's the image that we're chuckling about. You know, I, I think to expand on, on your comment, on focusing on on your successes, is there a formalized process or look back period when you see a success that you say, I want to expand, understand, and pass the key tenets of the success forward to transmit that culture? Is there a thing that you do, like an after action report, that you look at your successes to evaluate? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think it comes in a few flavors. You know, we're big fans of visioning. And so creating a vision, uh, which I know means different things to different people. You know, for us, for example, we will do, we'll do an annual visioning exercise where co-founder, it's not just me, it's you know, my co-founder, James, and, and other people on the leadership team as well, where we'll say, okay, you know, sit down, imagine yourself a year from now. It's, let's say, you know, December, or let's say it's February 5th. 2022. And we're sitting uh, in, you know, on the, on the back porch, there's burgers being grilled. We're all taking a lunch break and we're reflecting on the fact that we're realizing net operating profits of 15%, which is far more than we expected at this point. And the mood is such that, you know, people are happy, there's freedom in the air. Uh, and, and so, you know, this is the kind of thing that we're actually writing on paper. And as you can tell, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of this is about the feeling. It's not about just, hey, my vision is to make 10 million bucks. You know, because a vision has to be strategically sound and it has to be inspiring. If it's not both of those things, it's not a very effective vision. So that's an example of us, you know, going through a process that's pretty formalized. And then at the end, looking back and saying, you know, did we do this? And actually not just at the end, but as we go looking and saying, you know, are we, still, are we still on path to this vision? You know, another thing that we've developed uh, that actually we've built our entire business around is called the coherence method. And so that is, a, that is a process by which, you know, there's six different elements. It starts with discovery, you know, it goes into customer insights, understanding your brand, creating a coherent statement, creating channel strategy and marketing strategy, you know, executing all of these things. And ultimately, there's measurement that's attached to it. 
right? Because you have to know, are we successful or not? Uh, so, you know, from, from visioning kind of big picture type stuff to getting into the trenches with the coherence method, these are two things that, that I'm thinking of. And I don't know if that's doing a great job of answering your question or not. I guess for me, I, and, you know, to, and, and I've gone, Jamie, typically off the rails and we've gone long. But I was thinking about formal process to take and try to replicate further success paths and, and you know, markers of success and so on. And, and it's just, it's fascinating to me to try to look at repetitive success stories and, you know, it's not luck. And so you go, how do you institute it? Yeah. I mean, to your point about it, it's not luck. I mean, uh, hope is not a strategy. Uh, <laughs> and, and so there's that, right? Um, and, and I think that, you know, what's interesting about processes, you know, so, I mean, one of the things I, I love about being in Jamie's Titan group is that she's always coming to the table with resources. And so, for example, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Traction, right? Uh, so great book, you know, very formulaic. Uh, there's this massive consulting network of how do you implement Traction to grow your business. You've got Zingerman's open book management and, you know, Jack Stack. And there's, there's all this, you know, you've got structures like the Challenger sale. There's all these things. And I think that what we have found is that we've been successful because we've been able to bend, blend, and break what's been proven from frameworks that are not our own. But ultimately, when we try to follow things perfectly, like militantly, step by step, we start to get into trouble. And I think some organizations culturally are better off dotting their I's and crossing their T's and following the step-by-step things that have been laid out. And for us, for whatever reason, we just, uh, we've got to bend, blend, and break. And that's how we've been able to, you know, iterate and and grow and, and stay relevant. Well, Jamie, we didn't even make it remotely through some of the questions we were going to ask. We, (laughs) I'm, you know, I, to circle back to the bend, blend, and break, which I love, you know, is it, it, I think, you know, like for me and thinking about the environment that you operate in, you don't have a stable environment because you're working with the people that are consuming media and they change and adapt and, and differentiate. And so for you guys, the notion that what you put in place in January may in fact be 100% spot on by July would be a gift, you know, because things iterate, things change. I mean, think about January 1's plan versus the end of March plan for this year. I mean, they're not on the same planet, you know, Absolutely. I mean, to think that you're going to have a formalized marketing plan over the course of a year, um, okay, that's realistic to a point in terms of budgeting and overarching themes and activities, but spelled out and detailed like you would have 10 years ago, forget about it. That's going to be a book that sits on a shelf. You've got to be able to, you know, we're huge fans of 30 and 60 day planning cycles because we recognize you know, things are going to change. Uh, we're fans of interviewing our clients, customers at least once a year, because if you think that's a one and done project that you did two or three years ago, you're sadly mistaken. Culture changes, right? And so the reason people want to buy something changes. Yeah, and it might be a subtle nuance, but if you start to recognize what that nuance is, well, then that gives you clues into not just what your core customer wants, but what your potential growth cluster, or sorry, that's a, ter- that's a buzzword, 
what's your potential growth audience, you know? So you've got core customers, your kind of core audience that you market to, but along the edges of that core audience are what we call growth clusters. And that's where you recognize new audiences to market to. And, and there's no better way to figure that out than customer conversations. Jamie, I, you know, we, you ask at the beginning of the show, how long do we have? And go like, well, longer than we initially budgeted. But nonetheless, before I forget, for the folks out there, I'm you know, fascinated and want to reach out to you. How do they find you on social media? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's funny. I think uh, on LinkedIn, it's just Room 214 guy. So, you know, it's linkedin.com slash en slash Room 214 guy. <laughs> uh, you know, Jason at room214.com is my email address. My inbox is a disaster, but um, that's okay. And then, you know, <laughs> just I'm, I'm the guy who answers all the forms uh, that are filled out on room214.com too. So if anybody goes there and does that, they'll, they'll uh, hear from me. Jamie, do you think there's a move afoot to retire the room214 number at the dorm? <laughs> I think that's an awesome thought. Um, it's always amazing to me how people come up with their names. So it's an incredible story. And just listening to you speak all, throughout this podcast, Jason, I mean, I feel like I could listen to you all day. Your life lessons learned, your experiences, just the incredible coolness that's attached to what you do and who you serve. It's been all inspiring today. So for those of you that are listening and would love to learn more about Jason and the Titan 100, you can visit www.titan100.biz. You can read Jason's story. You can read the stories of all of our 100 Titans here recognized in Colorado. And uh, thanks so much for being with us today, Jason. It's been I really awesome. appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks to you and, and Bob and just for making all this happen. And Hope I wasn't too long-winded. You know, people love to talk about themselves, right? <laughs> well, we kept asking questions. I mean, it was, we did. yeah, we had something to do with that. So anyway, that, you know, I really appreciate it. Jamie, thank you so much again. And Jason, thank you for your time. And uh, absolutely, as we say, thank you for your service. I had a great time. Thank, thank you for you. your service, Bob. You betcha. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye now. We'll see you guys.